Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Bunch of chatty Cathy's here today. That's great. I love that. <clears throat> My name is Ryan Toller. Have the absolute pleasure to run the college ministry here at the chapel. If you don't know me, um, would love to get to know you. Please feel free to come up, introduce yourself. Um, but good to be here. I love, I love being here on Sundays, open up the Word of God, and it's changed my life um, completely, and so I love just talking about it with you guys. But before we jump in, I, uh, something you need to know about me is I love a good story, okay? Like, I, I search for good stories. I love hearing good stories, and actually last week, I was able to be a part of a good story, a great story, one that was hilarious, and I think you'll find funny as well. But basically what happened was I went to a gender reveal party. You know, typically you show up at a gender reveal party, they, they like blow up a balloon and then the confetti fly, flies out and it shows the gender of the baby. Well, I went to a gender reveal party that was very different than any I'd ever been to. I've actually never been to one. This is the first one. Uh, so, <laughs> But what happened, what happened was the, uh, the couple was bold in that they asked the grandparents of the baby to dress up as a baby boy and a baby girl, okay? So you could imagine how strange two grandparents walking out of the house was, and one was dressed up as a baby girl in pink with a diaper, and the grandfather was dressed up as a baby boy in the diaper, okay? And you're like, what in the world's happening? I thought the same thing. Uh, but they then proceed to take the grandparents to the end of the dock, okay? And whatever grandparent got pushed into the river was, was not the gender of the baby, okay? So... Yes, you can imagine all of our shock. Uh, but the, the grandfather got pushed in, which is probably the better of the two to get pushed in, which left the grandmother standing on the dock, which then, of course, meant that the baby was a baby girl, which was exciting and awesome. But I thought, man, what a shame if I just told you it. What, what a shame if I didn't just also show you this video. Uh, not of them being pushed in, but of them walking outside now, uh, I'm curious if you'll be able to figure out who the grandfather is. It might or might not be Doug Rett. Listen, if, uh, if this is your first time here today, I'm so sorry. We are, <laughs> we are not a bunch of weirdos, I promise. <laughs> well, some of us are, but uh, that was our teaching pastor, Doug. Yes, and I think I might get fired tomorrow. <laughs> no, I got permission from Jackie. I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> I actually got permission from Doug, believe it or not, to show that video. Why he gave me permission, I have no idea. But... Please remind him. Please remind him and bring that up next time you see him. Uh, uh, what's that? What'd you say? I didn't hear that. Oh, he's got... We're on the live stream. Oh, man. I know. He's going to get me back. There's no doubt about it. He's going to get me back. Oh, man. But... Well, I love that because, first of all, Doug's just a fun guy, and it shows he's still got some student ministry blood in him. That's what I like about it, right? It's been 20 years, but it's still in him. We do that stuff all the time in student ministry. But, 
Well, this is going to be the worst transition you've ever heard. Open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter (laughs) 1. And we're going to be in the book of Daniel for two weeks. We're going to take a pit stop and uh, to look at this principle of how to be true to God under pressure. What I love about Daniel is there's going to be four characters in the beginning of it that are going to just exemplify that in a really cool way. And what's cool also about Daniel is it's kind of a flashback from Nehemiah. We've been in Nehemiah for these past months, um, so to speak. And Daniel is what, in the book of Daniel, we see how Nehemiah and the people show up in a foreign land. So we're going to get a flashback to see how did Nehemiah start there, and Daniel will help us to see that. But all looking at this idea of how to be true to God under pressure, which these four, these four young Jewish boys are going to show us. And so uh, what, the, the book starts out with pressure mounting, which is uh, kind of this first slide that the, the pressure is mounting in Israel and that Israel is walking away from the Lord. Uh, during this time, there's this king. His name is Jehoiakim. He's a, he took Israel, which was at a good place under the King Josiah, and he took Israel to this terrible place where they weren't worshiping God and they were doing all these terrible things. And, he, and it had been 12 years of a bad king. And imagine the faith, imagine the faith of these four young men as they are watching, as, as the pressure is increasing, and they're watching their nation squeeze God out of it, right? Because uh, Jehoiakim and everyone else is just doing a bunch of stuff that not pleasing to the Lord, and they're kind of squeezing, they're putting the pressure on God and squeezing them out of the country. Maybe some of us can, can relate to that. feels like they're in a way that God might be being squeezed out of the country. And so if you've ever felt turmoil of that today, that's exactly what they were feeling. The pressure is adding on these young men as, as, uh, as it seems God is being squeezed out. And so <clears throat> we're going to read the first six verses. And I hope you'll have the eye to see, you'll have the eye to see how that pressure continues to increase, how it only grows in six verses. And so we'll start in Daniel chapter 1. It says, In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So pressure is increasing. Uh, the Lord, and then the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to his, Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar and the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Again, it keeps on increasing. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths whom there was no defect, who were good looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability to serve in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach He ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years and at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. And then it only increases. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, to Daniel. To Daniel, he was assigned the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. And so we see, uh, I, I read all these verses to show pressure is increasing on these young men. First of all, Israel is not, Israel's not just walking away from the Lord. We actually see Babylon shows up and sieges Jerusalem. 
you don't know what a siege is, all it is is literally a military tactic to put pressure on a city, to squeeze the people out by squeezing all their resources, their the water, their food, you name it. They surround it and they put pressure on it. And so uh, Israel's walking away from the Lord. You can feel that, that, that squeeze, that pressure. And then Babylon shows up, uh, puts to siege Jerusalem. And then we see in verse two, Babylon conquers Jerusalem as well. And they don't just conquer Jerusalem in the same in the same verse, we see Babylon disgraces God, where they ransack the temple. They take all the holy objects in the tabernacle, and they bring them back to Babylon and put them at the feet of a idol, of a, of a god of, of Babylon. And, and you might say, well, how is pressure increasing? And I'm just trying to show, it is if, if the, these young men are a mustard jar. What's this in a jar? This is a some bottle. Bottle. I don't know. That works. If these young men are mustard bottle, their faith is being squeezed, right? Their, their faith, the pressure is on their faith to, to leave them because God, God gave them a promised land. He gave them a promised people and he gave them a promised nation. And by verse five, that promised nation is no longer, it's totally conquered. That promised land is, is not theirs anymore, it's Nebuchadnezzar's. And that promised people, as we see in, I think, verse six, has been ripped away from, from the people of God. They're being taken away. And so uh, I'm, if I'm living in that time, I'm thinking, God, why didn't you show up? Where are you? Why are you not here? You said you'd protect us. You'd said you would provide for us, and yet I'm in a land far, far away and that pressure is mounting and it only continues as Babylon doesn't just disgrace God we see the best are forced to leave that Nebuchadnezzar grabs the best and the brightest and pulls them away from Israel and if if they had hope I bet they feel like their hope is draining out of them as how are we going to rebuild if the best are are not here and for those who are taken away pressure is only going to increase because now the best are going to be forced to change they, they, they got to change all of their ways. <clears throat> and the king of this time, Nebuchadnezzar, he is going to have a goal for these young men. He, he's, he, has a, he has a purpose in what he's doing in those first six verses. And, and that purpose is there are four young Jewish men. There's probably a bunch of others. But there are young Jewish men who are servants of God. And his goal is going to take them to become court officials of Babylon, right? And both in, in, in their hands and in their practical day-to-day, but he doesn't just want to take them from servants of God to servants of Babylon. And, and just practically, he wants to do it in their heart as well. And he's, and he's really conniving in how he seeks to do that. And so he has a path. He has a path he's going to put these young men on to become servants of Babylon. And the first tactic he uses... The first tactic that the enemy of God used back then was isolation. That he wanted to take the boys away from their community, which, in a, which was still allowed for worship, still allowed for prayer, and he's going to rip them away. And I, I actually wondered, I thought, I wonder if Nebuchadnezzar knew the story of Exodus, where the Israelites were enslaved to the pharaohs of that time for 400 years. And if you know the story, the pharaohs of Egypt, they didn't separate the Israelites. They actually gathered them all together. All the Israelites, when they were slaves in Egypt, they lived in one small place, and the pharaohs worked them like mad, but, the, but kept them all together. And I wonder if Nebuchadnezzar said, no, I know how that story plays out. I'm not going to keep them together. I'm going to spread them out. 
<clears throat> excuse me. And it's kind of like the same principle of fire, right? If you, want to, if, you want to, if you don't have water and you want a fire to die out, you keep the logs together or you spread the logs out. You, you spread the logs out, right? And that's what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. He's like, if, they have, if their faith is a fire, I'm not going to allow them to be together. I'm going to spread them out. And uh, what's interesting is in terms of the people of God, isolation is a fantastic tactic with a high success rate, no matter the time. It's a fantastic tactic, no matter, a fantastic tactic, no matter the uh, time frame. And even today, it's dangerous. Uh, Even today, isolation is so harmful for the body of Christ, which is what we're called as believers. We're part of his body. And when we isolate, what we do is if I am meant to be the hand of, of the body, like my life is to build up, be about building the kingdom as a hand would, isolation cuts off the hand and functionally puts it aside and says, be the feet, be the mouth, be the, the eyes, right? But the hand isn't meant to do that when it comes to building the body. And so isolation, isolation doesn't just hurt me, it hurts the body, because now the body has one less hand because it's been pulled, it's been pulled away. And, uh, and, and there's an overwhelming amount of verses in the New Testament that say that we should be together. They're, they're called the one another's, or to love one another, care for one another, uh, forgive one another, and correct one another. And the truth of the matter is, is when we are isolated, when we are pulled from each other, we cannot, we cannot participate in the one another's together right? Uh, it, we, can't, we can't do it. We are apart. And, and another truth of the matter is one of the main ways the Lord chooses to build his kingdom is through the body. And when we're separated from the body, we're missing out on what the Lord wants to do in our lives. And so uh, our enemy, the enemy back then wanted to isolate these young men, and the enemy today wants to isolate us as well. And uh, what is true, though, is when we are together, when we're together, my, my mind went to like a, a, a row of shields and like a battlefield. And when, when me and my brothers and sisters in Christ are together living life with, with one another, we're able to like adjust and block the tactics of the enemy, the fiery darts that are firing at us. We're able to adjust and block. But when, but when I isolate, I take a step out from that row with my shield and I say, I can do it myself. I can do it myself. But uh, what I've come to see is I was never made for that sentence. I was never made for the sentence, I can do it myself. And I thought, and that shows up in so many places. Tie it to my salvation. Try to use that that sentence in my salvation and your salvation. I want to get to heaven, I can do it myself. Good luck. Good luck. You won't be able to. That's why Jesus came because we could not do it ourselves. Uh, tie it to this Christian life. You just determine in your heart that you, I, I, can do, I can become more like Jesus. I can do it myself. You'll come back months later weary and tired because it's not, you cannot live this life by yourself. That's why Christ sent the Spirit to empower you to live this life by yourself. And so if, if, I couldn't, I, if I couldn't do it in terms of my salvation and I couldn't do it in terms of my sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, why would I, why would I believe the lie that I, could, I can live this life apart from the body, the ones who are meant to walk alongside me? And so uh, all I'm trying to show is, is isolation is a tactic that's still been used. It is still being used. 
And I think it especially has in the past two years as well, where if, if Daniel and his friends were forced to isolate in Daniel 1, and they were, they were forced to not return, two years ago we were forced to isolate, encouraged to return, and many still have not, right? That, that isolation is still at work in the body of Christ. And if it's for medical reasons, I, I totally, totally understand but I, I, just wanna, I just want us to get to a place, if maybe we are in isolation, maybe in a live stream, I'm convinced we can be fully isolated even when we show up on a Sunday morning every week uh, to ask the question of, am I, am I a lonely shield in the field? Because if I am, I'm gonna get hit. I'm gonna get hit. Am I a lonely shield in the field? Or have I believed this lie that I can do it myself? I can do it myself. If... Uh, if college ministry has taught me anything, it is the first, the first sign of isolation that I've witnessed with my students, that where they're going to isolate, the first thing I see are actually reasonable reasons, right? They typically, if they want to like take a step back and isolate, there's always some reasonable reason that shows up because of it. I'm, I'm really busy. My work schedule's uh, super hard. I'm not connecting. I feel like no one likes me. And, and I'm not saying those aren't true, they, they might be true, and we as the body should, should do as much as we can so that those sentences aren't said. However, what I'm trying to show is often the, those sentences, reasonable reasons, are, are the gateway for isolation. And I encourage my students. I say, listen, uh, I, I totally understand. I want to work through this with you. But if this, is the, if this is the grounds to take a step away and not be a part of the body, I, I can't support it, and I, I really want, I want to help you. And so... Uh, reasonable reasons are often the sign of it, and it's just, I think, helpful as we, as we will face it our, ourselves. And, uh, and so, isolation, we get it. Uh, it's the path uh, to become a servant of Babylon, and that's going to be true, true for us today. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just seek to isolate these young men, uh, according to the first six verses. He also has a hope to re-educate them. And, and, it, and it looks like this. Uh, again, if these young men are a mustard bottle, I, Nebuchadnezzar's goal is to squeeze God out of them, to get God out of them in order to fill them with something new. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to isolate them. I'm going to spread the logs out so that uh, they slowly drain this old God. And then I'm going to put them in a university, which the, the verse shows us. For three years, they sat in a university that filled them with uh, of magic and philosophy and language and literature and all this stuff. And they are seeking to fill these young men with what is new. And it's, it's intriguing how the, the tag team of isolation and re-education can be a, a dangerous one. And we see that with our college students. Many leave Jacksonville. Many head out to Jacksonville uh, to a new place. And they're stepping into a new city isolated because they're not a part of the body of Christ. And, they, and there's a good chance re-education is coming their way as well. And my, my number one words to a college student who leaves Jacksonville, uh, it, the number one thing I say is find a church. Find a church. I don't care about your weekly schedule. I don't care about your syllabus. I think one of your top priorities should be that you would find a body of Christ to come alongside that can help you. And I, and I think it's fair. I'm not saying don't send your kids to other you know, cities. That's perfectly fine. But to emphasize the value of a church because re-educations can be harder to combat when there is no believers beside you able to walk that life with you. And so um, re-education re can be dangerous. And 
I, wouldn't, I honestly wouldn't be surprised for Daniel and his friends if re-education looked like this. Uh, the professors and the Babylonians looking at these four young men and saying, why, why follow an old God, right? Why, why follow a God that uh, is so old? You need to follow a new king. And, and I bet they were directed, listen, our, our gods conquered your gods, so why are you still following your old gods? You need to leave the outdated king, bring in the new king, right? I, I have no doubt that's part of this re-education, kind of filling them with a new idea. And, and that, still, that still happens today as well. This idea of why follow an old, outdated king, right? Why, why follow a God that was written in a book 2,000, 6,000 years ago? That, follow a new king. Follow something that is more updated and new. And typically those new kings are yourself, other people, or, or different types of movements. But this idea of leave the old, adopt the new is very prevalent. And we even see it in, in today's society. If, if the old king is absolute truth, we, we believe, I don't have my Bible up here, that's embarrassing. Uh, we believe uh, that the Bible is the standard of truth, right? Which I uh, sadly don't have up here. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, we believe the Bible is the, the standard of truth. And yet, that's, if that's the old king, what's the new king? Subjective, right? Well, you don't need to hold to a standard. Whatever, ever, whatever anyone thinks is true must be true. And there's subtle ways that gets placed in us for us to believe that and culture and social media, you name it. But stop following the absolute truth of Scripture. Start following a subjective, a newer type of truth. And uh, I'm convinced that doesn't lead us anywhere good. And so re-education is always happening, and yet, and isolation is always happening too. And that can be a, a, dangerous, a dangerous tag team. And so, uh, Nebuchadnezzar isolates, re-educates, and he also entices. He seeks to entice these young boys. If you read in the passage, he, he has the king's table, the best of the best food, and he looks at these young men and says, eat. And I'm not surprised if it is an attempt for these young men to compromise in small ways, right? I, I'm going to get them to eat food that their, that their dietary laws tell them not to, and they will begin to compromise. Again, uh, I'm going to take out what they have always known. I'm going to fill them with new practices and new things. And, I, and yet, what does, my, my question was, well, what does, how do they respond? And if you know the story, you're already aware, but I love verse 8. And this is how they respond to the king's table. And it says, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. And I asked the question of why, uh, I had to ask, I thought, why is, why is he defiling himself here? And the Bible doesn't give us a, um, a clarification on why, but it seems the majority of people believe the food and the wine uh, was offered to idols before it was placed on the king's table. It's kind of the assumption here. And so that, that's, how, that's how I moved on in the passage as well, is with that idea that there's a high chance the food was offered to the, to the gods of Babylon, and then the best of the best was placed at the king's table to be a blessing. This is the king. He gets the best that was offered to our gods first. So that, that seems to be the answer. I can't slam a gavel on that, but um, it seems to be, could be the option there. So I will start here. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Verse 11. 
But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your, your, with your servants accordingly. And so I, yeah, verse eight, Daniel says, I will not defile myself. And when I read that, I first asked the question, what, what's, on the, what's, what's being defiled? And then the second question I asked was, well, how does he do it? right? How can he stand before this massive table of fantastic food and say, I'm not going to? And because honestly, it'd be hard for me. And there's a ribeye on that table. I'm just, I'm going for it automatically. But he doesn't. Whatever, he just doesn't. I said, how? And the first way I saw that he doesn't was really intriguing because it's not obvious in the passage and yet it shows up. Where Daniel shows, how do we be true to God under pressure? And it reveals in who Daniel went to first. First of all, I believe he went to the Lord. But before he goes to the official, do you know who he goes to? His friends, right? Nebuchadnezzar seeks to isolate. He seeks to pull them away to spread out the logs. But Daniel, actually, the first thing he does, it appears, is he goes to his friends and they say, we can, let's not defile ourselves together. Daniel doesn't isolate. He actually gathers together. And how do I see that? Well, but when he goes to the official, do you see his words? Observe your servants, check our appearance, uh, test us. He, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about his group of friends together, that there was a conversation where they agreed together. They would not defile themselves with this king's table. And if, honestly, if, if there is a proneness to isolate when things get hard, Daniel here shows us uh, that our step should be to gather together with people of the same conviction. And uh, I, I'm convinced it's actually one of the greatest gifts that God gives Daniel is friends of the same conviction. And it's a, a fantastic gift that, that he gives us. And so what he, he, uh, Daniel doesn't isolate, he, he gathers together. And secondly, I, I think Daniel also, he's going to remember the word of God. And how does he do that? Well, if, if Nebuchadnezzar's hope is to re-educate, change his loves, uh, Daniel and his friends are going to not re-educate, but actually remember what God has said. And if this king's table, the food, was food, it was food and wine offered to idols before, I, I think Daniel looked at this table with his friends and said, no, I've seen this story play out before in Exodus 34, that God had spoken on something like this before, and I'm not, I'm not going to take a step into it because I remember the words of God. <clears throat> and I'm not surprised if Daniel and his friends had much of the Torah memorized by now because they were extremely intelligent. They were probably under a rabbi, and yet I think their memory shifted to Exodus 34. And what happens in Exodus 34 is God is talking to Moses, preparing Moses to take the people into the new land. And this is what God says to Moses, that I think they remember. Watch yourselves that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you're going to tear down the altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God." And this is where I want us to focus is, is this verse. That, that there's, I think there's a good chance if that table is food and wine offered to idols. Otherwise, God says you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot, remember that word, with their gods and sacrifice to their gods and someone might 
invite, remember that word too, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. That Daniel just simply shifted his mind, I think, to Exodus 34 to know that God in the Old Testament looked at Israel and said, do not eat meat sacrificed to idols. In the New Testament, we know Paul explains how that changes. But in the Old Testament, it seems obvious to me God is not for that. Because he then goes on to say, and then you might take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters might play the harlot, there's that word again, uh, with their gods and cause your sons to also play the harlot, which is simply just another word for prostitute with their gods. They will align themselves with new gods, not the old gods, right? And so uh, I, it seems plausible to me that Daniel looks and says, no, I, I know what God said in Exodus 34 and I can't do that because he asked me not to. But there's also another part of this that I think Daniel remembers. He doesn't just remember the words of God. I think he remembers the actions of God. Because if Exodus 34 is right here, in Numbers 25, we have an account of the people of Israel doing the exact opposite of Exodus 34. And I told you to to remember some words because they feel like similar passages, like (laughs) very parallel passages. But uh, Daniel's not just going to remember the words of God. He's going to remember the actions of God when the Israelites go in the opposite direction. And this is what happens in Numbers 25, not too many years after Exodus 34. Now, uh, while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited, there's the other one, for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And what happened? And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal and pure, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And so it, it, there's Daniel and his friends looking at a table, and they simply say, I've seen this story play out before, and I cannot hit the, replay, the repeat button. I can't hit that button to replay this story with different characters, because I know how this concludes, and it's with the Lord's anger. And, and I do not want to be opposed to, a, to, a righteous, to the righteous judge of all the earth. And so I'm going to not defile myself. I'd rather make Nebuchadnezzar angry than my God angry. And so uh, he just simply remembers. And so how do we be true to God under pressure? Well, we gather together. And I think we, we honestly remember God's word, which then allows us to reject the thing that seeks to entice us. <clears throat> And again, this, is, this has been a summary. I've been a summary of, of Nebuchadnezzar's tactics. The enemy of the people of God in the Old Testament's tactics to separate them from God, right? To isolate them, re-educate them, and, and entice them. And Daniel says, no, no, no. I'm, uh, those things aren't going to be squeezed out of me. I'm going to gather together with people of the same conviction. I'm going to rely on the Lord. I'm going to remember the words of the Lord and the actions of the Lord, which then I'm going to reject the enticement. And Nebuchadnezzar's plans are, are fooled because of the conviction of these young men. And so, long, a long answer to that short question of how do I endure in pressure? I think that we have a, a answer here um, shown as, as well. But I, I asked the question, well, what does that look like, right? How does that play out in, in today's time? And some thoughts that came to mind were, when, when your purity feels like it, it's because of sin, when sin approaches you and it feels like your purity is being squeezed out and desire filling you, what do we do? We remember like Daniel. But I remember, I've been here before. I've been here before and I know how this story plays out. 
And it is with my defilement, my regret. I always regret when I say yes and my wandering. And so as sin takes a step to me, before I take a step to it, I force my mind to think of how this concluded last time. Just like I think Daniel did, and, and I'm not, I'm gonna choose not to. Another instance, when, when my joy feels like the pressure is on my joy because of a dark world and, and life circumstances, when pressure feels like it is being squeezed out of me, what do I do? I simply remember. There's a, there's a wonderful psalm that says, I'll walk through the valley of shadow of death. I will fear, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. You're with me. And your rod and your staff, they always comfort me. And so before I fill myself with despair, I want to remember how he remains with me. And so when, when pressure increases, I want to ask the question of, what do I need to remember right now? Where do I need to shift my focus to remember on the truths of the Lord and also his faithfulness, his actions? There there have been multiple places recently where a part of my own faith has felt squeezed, like a part of it's coming out. And one of those was when I was in college. As I was a junior in college, I went through a a four to six month uh, phase where I felt like my assurance of my salvation was being squeezed out of me, that it was leaving me. And uh, that was due to a couple of reasons. One, I had, hadn't seen the Lord, the Lord work in a long time. Uh, I, had, I had found myself with a, with a hard heart to my sin, and I was not relying on him. And uh, I, I began to think this thought, which is a silly thought, and yet it was still bouncing around in my mind a lot, of what if I hit a hidden number, a hidden number of sins where the Lord says, I'm done, I'm done with you. And, and I, even, I wasn't even in the Word of God. And when I was in the Word of God, I felt like I was hitting a wall. And I interpreted that wall to be the Lord saying, dude, I'm not even here anymore with you. Uh, of course, nothing's going to help. Ha- nothing's going to happen that's helpful. I'm not, not even present. And I, and I legitimately felt like my assurance was being taken out of me from all these different reasons. But if I can, I, if I can tell you how the Lord kept me, of how I endured because of, because of the hand of the Lord. Uh, the, the first reason was simply due to a, a younger brother who had the same conviction of me. A 17-year-old younger brother who, if the story of our lives was, I, I, I'd sought to disciple him for many years, the script flipped and he discipled me for six months. As he pointed me to, to things that I was having a hard time remembering, and he said words to me that I needed in those four to six months, and there was tears and, and good words shared where I held fast to his company. As he directed me to, to a place like John 10, 28, that nothing can snatch me out of the Father's hand. And, and so I, I gathered together with my brother. I invited him in to this high-pressure zone, and, and he was a fantastic help to me. And another thing I held to, not just the words of God in John 10, 28, I held to a journal entry I made on July 16th, 2009, where me, little eighth grade Ryan, uh, I wrote, I, I can still remember it, it was the day where the Lord revealed my sin before me, and it left me in despair to see the weight of my need. But I, I didn't stay in despair, because I, I it was the day I placed my faith in Jesus, and he stepped into my life and began to change it. I... I have a journal entry of that day, and I kept rereading that 
over and over again when I felt like my assurance was being pulled out of me. Because if John 10, 28 is true, which I believe it is, that nothing can snatch me out of his hand. On July 16, 2009, that was the day I was placed in his hand. And so I'm not leaving. And and it's how the Lord, it's honestly how the Lord kept me um, during those times was. And I, I didn't even understand the example of Daniel, but I gathered together with my brother. I remembered the words of God and the faithfulness of God in my life. Uh, which allowed me to really, in time, reject the thing that was seeking to fill me, defile me. And so, I don't know if, I don't know if that might be the story of you guys in some place. Um, uh, another one, honestly, recently, and it feels strange to share, but uh, I have been, uh, another part of my faith that's felt squeezed, that's felt like it's pulling out of me, is there's been, I've been kept up really late at night with, and I don't know, I can't pinpoint the source yet, I hope to in the next couple weeks or months, if the Lord will let me. And, uh, but what has felt like it's been squeezed out of me, which feels weird to be standing up here sharing, but I'm just, I'm a person like everyone else, is simply a lack of uh, a confidence in the Lord. That I, I have, there's been these abnormal amount of thoughts in my mind doubting his existence, which uh, I'm a pastor on a website, but it, which feels strange to say that. But the reality is I'm just, I'm a person wrestling with doubts right now. Uh, and, and they have kept me up late at night. And uh, things like, and, and they've just, and I'm, my faith isn't in jeopardy. I just find these thoughts so often in my thinking that, what if I've just made it all up, right? What if I've lied to myself to give myself something to believe in all these times? Or what, another one that's been prevalent, what if I've attributed the Lord's hand to a bunch of coincidences, hoping that they're there is a God. Because if, it's that the, if that's the case, my job's pointless. If Jesus never resurrected, my, my life is pointless. And so what if I've just honestly made it all up? And that scared me, honestly, recently to, to have those thoughts in my mind. But if I can tell you what's helped, if I can tell you how the Lord has kept me, it has been, again, in the same footsteps of Daniel, that first of all, I have, I have gathered together I've invited my wife in on this. And initially I thought, I'll do it myself. But Daniel convicted me. I, I, I wasn't made for that sentence. I, I, I shouldn't do this myself. And she has been a fantastic gift to me. Uh, someone who can pray for me, check in on me, and care for me. And, and secondly, I, uh, I have remembered. And I, I've sought to remember the faithfulness of God. Where uh, I, I, have a, I have a journal as as my grandmother gave me a long time ago. And as I share, I want to ask the band to come back up. And as they come up, it, what has been so, uh, what I've been so grateful for is a journal my grandmother gave me. And she said, Ryan, I'd love if you just recorded all the Lord's deeds in your life. Times where you, it has been obvious that he has worked in your life. And I've sought to do that. Uh, like a time, it's, in my, it's, a, it's an entry in my journal where uh, I was walking down a sidewalk. A friend came to me and said, Ryan, I want to go on a missions trip to an unreached people. I feel like the Lord's called me, but I have $2,350 my family cannot come up with. And we prayed for, for him to meet that need. She walked on by, and literally about 30 seconds later, a little girl who I had never talked to before says, Ryan, never talked to you before but my family has $2,400. They want to give to someone who wants to go on a missions trip. Do you know anyone? I'm like, yes, I know someone. Run that way. We need to find her, right? And, and I, I share this to say there are entries in that journal where I am a fool to conclude its coincidence, and it can only be the hand of the Lord. 
I remember distinctively walking around my school for an hour pleading with the Lord to direct me. I had two options for my life, two pathways, and I could not decide. And I did not want to lean on my own understanding, but I wanted to acknowledge him and, 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 and he would direct my path. And so I was pleading with the Lord, Lord, I really would love to know where you want me to go. And in a moment's time, he answered. And, and he provided clarity and a peace into a direction. And that's why I'm honestly here today was my wrestling with him uh, for that hour walking around my old school. And another time, another time, I'm a fool to conclude that is coincidence. And so I have, I have sought to remember the faithfulness of God in my life because there is ample upon ample. There's sand on the shore amount of times he has worked in fantastic ways. And so why would I forget? How could I forget the, the wonderful ways he's worked? And that has, that has helped me to remember. And honestly, I've, I've been holding on to Isaiah 40 a lot as well as these thoughts have been bouncing around in my mind. As uh, Isaiah writes in, in one of the verses, he says, have you not heard? Have you not understood? Has it not been told to you from the beginning that our God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth? And he reigns uh, with a mighty arm. And he goes on, to, it, it goes on to say, which I won't quote, and then he picks back up and says, and so with whom will you compare to God? Who is his equal? And Isaiah says, let me answer that question. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? And he says, let me answer that one for you. Uh, he who created all of these, he who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth of them each of, each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. And so why, why do you quote that? I quote that because as I have sat in my bed and these thoughts have been reigning in my mind, Isaiah 40 has directed me to lift the shade of my window and just look up in the sky, that the world is way too complex to not have a creator. And Isaiah 40 has helped me, has kept me, as doubts of God's existence have been bouncing around in my mind to be reminded there is a God because this world is too great without him. And so I don't know where in your life has felt like things are being pulled out of you because of pressure, uh, but I just want to encourage you in the same footsteps of Daniel that you would invite someone in, you would gather together because we weren't meant to do it ourselves. And you wouldn't just gather together, you would remember the words of God and not just his words, which is fantastic in his, in the scriptures, but also how he has been faithful to you, that you might reminisce on the wonderful things he has done for you. And in turn, I believe it will allow you to reject that enticement that is seeking to fill you. And so as Matt and the band play this song, it's a song that centers on the, on the faithfulness of our Lord. Uh, I ask that you might you might stand and consider as you stand, how can, uh, what is, what part of my life feels squeezed? And how can I take these steps to walk in it in a pleasing way? Thank you. God of Abraham, you're the God of covenant, of faithful promises. Time and time again, you have proven you do just what you say. Though the storms may come and the winds may blow, I'll remain steadfast. And let my heart learn when you speak a word, it will come to pass. Great is your faith. Great is your faithfulness to 
that you're here. I hope we go as we go now, just remembering the faithfulness of God. We've seen him work in the past. We can trust he's going to work in the future. may not always understand it, but he's with us. Um, grateful that you are here and lending your voice again to sing those truths. I hope you go and be blessed. Have a good one.